Hello and welcome back to the Clips Nation podcast. I'm your host, Sabrina Merchant, and I am joined today by David Bernal of Clutch Points to talk about one of the hottest teams in the NBA, the LA Clippers. David, how's it going? You know, Sabrina, I am doing as well as one could possibly be doing. I am the new proud owner of a PlayStation 5. Ooh! I can no longer afford to buy groceries. <laughs> At the end, I'm hoping that we can link my GoFundMe for people to contribute so that I can eat. But you know what? Who needs sustenance when one can live off the joys that a new digital device brings? I mean, I, I hear you. We just got out of shoot around with the LA Clippers and Patrick Patterson was talking lovingly about Pokemon uh, Sword and Shield and all of the other video games that he and the Clippers play while they're on the road because it's pretty much all you can do these days. <laughs> okay, so our... So thank goodness, have, you know, the, they all got PS5s too at the start of the season. Yeah, you know, okay, so I was not aware that Pokemon was such a huge thing. I, mm-hmm. When I was growing up, you know, I was very into the trading cards. Of course. And it just, it warms my heart that people are still trying to catch them all. Yeah, I think Patrick Patterson is like not that much older than I am. Uh, I'm going to look this up real quick. He is, he's got to be like early 30s tops. Oh, okay. So, so it, it may just, maybe the very youngins. much of the age where like, you know, you grow up with the trading cards and then, yeah, he's 31. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, he said it's a little nostalgic. You know, he likes playing it. The guys on the team, when he's on the plane playing, they're like, bro, how old are you? But it's, it's very much of his time. Like if anything, Absolutely. they're, you know, they're, dating themselves by how young they are by not wanting to play Pokemon. Also Pokemon, I think in the top five conversation for greatest theme song of all all time, right up there with, I think Fresh Prince has to be at Mm. near the top friends. Sure. Pokemon's definitely in there. A conversation for another day. But yeah, you know, it's it's something we really should consider for another time because I would have to do some research, you know, going into that discussion. I have not, I have not done the research. I'm going to, I'm here to admit it. Like I'm just not prepared to have this conversation. So that's uh, fair. Yeah. Well, I mean, as much as I like talking about Patrick Patterson, um, he is not the reason that the Clippers have won their last five games in a row. Oh, he's uh, not. And I'm just going to, you know, give an open-ended lab here for you, David. What do you think is the most important reason that the Clippers have been so successful to start the season 11 and four, you know, a half game behind the Lakers as we record this? Who do you give the most credit to? So the, the easy answer can at times often double as the best answer. And Paul George, I think, is the easiest answer. His development into a playmaker and the focal point of the Clippers offense, I think, has been one of the more noticeable trends of the early NBA season. Uh, you know, and it's you watch him play and obviously he looks so much better than when we saw him at during the bubble Uh, but the Clippers aren't also asking him to do anything that's crazy his efficiency numbers are are really good across the board and I think that's indicative of the types of shots that he's been getting he hasn't been having to shoot over double teams and has just been knocking shots down left and right his points in production very much comes within the flow of the offense Um, he's been doing this thing where as much as his playmaking has been getting attention, he's actually developed into a really good screener. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I love watching him because he has a habit of kind of slipping the screen at the last moment and darting into the mid ranges. has been really, really productive there. Uh, and so I think his progress and 
reclaiming his role as a superstar, I, I think has been the most noticeable and biggest improvement that the Clippers uh, have seen coming from the end of last season, which was obviously not great into the early goings of this year. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that thing about him being a good screener because uh, he actually, I think talked about this last game and it's, you know, it's something that you see obviously with the splash brothers a lot, but like shooters make the best screeners because when they set a screen, like you, you can't afford to send help, right? Because you have to stay attached to him. And uh, I think that's, what's so interesting about the Clippers offense at this moment is that, you know, in that starting five, every single person is a capable shooter. And so like when they set those off ball screens, like it's just, it's really hard to send any help, but you kind of have to, because that's just like, uh, I forget who I was listening to the other day. They're saying like, there's like a plague of overhelping going on in the NBA. <laughs> and like, uh, yes, I actually, yeah. I, so I don't know if this was the same person, but uh, Steve Jones. Right. On uh, the dunker spot. Yeah. On the dunker spot who, for anybody who's not listening, if you just want to be a smarter observer of the NBA, follow his Twitter feed, because I don't know if there's any more of an informative person on Twitter right now. He's absolutely brilliant. And I don't know that it was Steve Jones, but it was somebody else was pointing out when you're talking about uh, shooters being uh, the best screeners and defensives over helping on them. Is it just me or are defenses really over coming off of Luke Kennard uh, uh, way more than they did. You know, Kennard is taking the spot of Landry Shamit last season. And I don't know their numbers. I have to look just from the eye test, their numbers, shooting numbers can't be all that much different. And yet it seems like the teams are so much more afraid of Kennard than they are of Shamit. It's almost like his name more so than his production warps the gravity on the field. Uh, more so than it will. And so when George is playing off of Kennard, defenses are so afraid to overhelp as George drives to the basket that it's giving PG just great matchups as he drives to the rim. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you hit on this earlier that just every shot that Paul is taking, you know, every shot that really anybody on the Clippers is taking just feels like a very easy look. Like they're not forcing anything. Um, they're giving up good shots to get great ones right like that's been their mantra to just keep passing into the great shots and like I I just watch their offensive flow and I'm just like every single position I'm like oh that's a good shot that's a good shot like maybe it doesn't go in because they don't always go in but like I rarely find myself watching the Clippers on offense thinking that they should have done something better right like even when they take like a shot in early transition or something like it's because it's Paul George and it's an open three-pointer like maybe they could have gotten a better shot but like who are you to complain about a guy who's shooting what? What is he shooting right now? 50 some percent from three point line. <laughs> like Right. And uh, and obviously those numbers, as you mentioned, are going to come back to earth. It's highly maybe, doubtful I mean, that. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess PG could, you know, really approach that because he is, you look at his form, it's mm-hmm. a picture perfect shooting form. Um, but even if they do end up coming back down to earth a little bit, uh, I'm somebody who's in all things has really bought into the mantra of process over results. And mm-hmm. it's difficult to argue that the process that Ty Lue has set up for this team could be better. Uh, I, I just don't see where any of those inefficiencies are, are, are going to exploit for them. It, it seems to be clicking on all cylinders in exactly the way that they intended. Yeah, it's so interesting because uh, one thing that Doc Rivers used to talk about a lot was pace, pace, pace. And 
Ty Lue mentions it a lot too. And yet the Clippers do not pay, play with a lot of pace. Like they are, yeah. I think among the bottom three slowest teams in the league. And, you know, it's, it's hard to complain with the results because obviously like number one offensive efficiency, whether you're looking like without garbage time with garbage time, like if it all favors the Clippers at this point. And I, like I said, I, I can't see them like, you know, changing anything meaningfully that they're doing with their offense because it's working so well. And you'd think like good teams would want to generate more possessions because that makes the, you know, there's less variance than for bad teams to catch up with you. Right. Like that's always been the playbook for underdogs and playoff series is to slow the game down, you know, muck it up, have fewer possessions so that there's a greater chance that you can get back into the game. And that's something that Denver actually did against the Clippers in the playoffs last year. Like all of the final few games of the series were much slower than the first four when the Clippers were playing well. Um, and yet the Clippers have just decided that, okay, well, they keep talking about pace, like obviously, but it's just their offense seems to work better when they settle down and get into their flow. And like, why would you need to even play in transition when you can generate the level of offense efficiency there on the half court? No, absolutely. And I, I think even if you're going to ask why do the Clippers seem so much better than they do uh, this year than at any point last season, even though they obviously had a tremendous amount of success last year, I think if you're going to kind of zoom out and ask, okay, is it just one player that's driving it? The thing that comes most to mind is that this team is just better constructed than mm-hmm. at any point than they were last season. The addition of Serge Ibaka and Nick Batum, who may end up proving to be two most important off-season acquisitions in the entire NBA. Obviously, if you want to throw it into this year, James Harden, that will be an sure, interesting, yeah. you know, but, but especially two guys that are below that kind of star level, mm-hmm. you'd be hard-pressed to find two better off-season acquisitions than Serge Ibaka and Nick Batum. And you watch the Clippers and the floor is so well-balanced that it creates natural driving lanes um, and, and space for these guys to operate, particularly PG, who we've seen use that most effectively this year. And I, I, I do think part of in a little bit of defense of, of Doc Rivers last year, part of the reason why the Clippers had to play with so much pace is, is that if they didn't operate in transition as much as they did, they were going to have to rely on PG and Kawhi to operate in isolation or to start picking roles where, you know, the switch really wasn't going to happen. And so they weren't going to have a mismatch to exploit. The offense just seemed a lot more mucked up than mm-hmm. at any point this season. Um, and, you know, I, I think we've seen Ty Lu bring an emphasis on hunting mismatches for Kawhi. We'll see the Clippers go through several iterations of pick and rolls throughout a single offensive set so that Paul George can find the guy he wants to attack. That's something that we didn't see last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's something that Ty Lu said a lot at the start of the season. It hasn't come up as much recently just because they're blowing out these opponents. There's not a lot of, you know, details to nitpick into, but he said that they're working on the play after the play, right? Like when the first option breaks down, what is it that you can do? And we saw this obviously a lot last season where when the first option broke down, it was like, all right, well, let's just give the ball to Kawhi and let him do something or give the ball to Lou and let him do something. Um, And that's, I mean, it's not a bad option, right? Like those are players who are very capable of doing those things, Um, but it's easier to scheme for, you know, when you're playing a seven game series. And now we're saying like, okay, well, that pick and roll doesn't work. Well, there's, you know, some, 
off ball screen that's happening that this guy's opening up or you can just drive into the paint and kick out and there's something else that's going to open up. And it's very refreshing, I guess, to see the Clippers like play with so much movement and freedom. And um, they're obviously running sets, you know, like they're definitely plays that Tyloo has installed. And you see those most clearly like in after timeout situations, you know, start of quarters, things like that. But uh, just the flow more than anything is what stands out with the Clippers. Um, and like, I'm not of the belief that, you know, jump shooting teams cannot win championships. Like that's obviously right. a ridiculous construct and the Warriors have won championships, but I, I do find myself still a little bit wary of relying on such a high volume of jump shots, you know, mm-hmm. to construct your offense. And the only thing that like is mildly concerning about the Clippers is that even though they get into the paint a lot, it's never to score. You know, right. it's always to just kick out or as the Clippers like to say, to spray out for three-point shooters. I don't know where that word comes from. Spray is a very <laughs> like non-basketball word in my vernacular, but that's, that's like the only thing I, I might be like a little interested in is just getting a little more offense coming in the paint because they don't get a lot of free throws. They don't really score much at the rim. Um, and while it's fair to say, like, of course, like they're not going to shoot, you know, 45% or whatever from three-point range, like the majority of their shots are wide open. Like, why wouldn't they go in? I just the later you get in the season, you know, tired legs, longer series, I would like their offense to be a little bit more diversified in terms of where those points come from. But again, those are like nitpicks because the general efficiency is so impressive right now. No. And I look, I do think it is concerning the free throws, the lack of free throw attempts, excuse me, concerns me more than just the pure points in the paint, especially because I was looking at tracking data from synergy sports and the, Clippers lack of production in the paint just simply seems to be coming from a a lack of volume Mm -hmm. um, and a a lack of shots that are being taken in that area rather than an inability to convert when you are there. Mm -hmm. Um, Their conversion rate is actually really good. I think it's in the top 10 in the league. It's just that the volume is, I believe, and I I, I don't have the tracking data uh, in front of me, but it's something like less than 7% of their possessions are ending in that area, even though their conversion rate on them is really, really high. So it's a little bit of, okay, well, if you can succeed in this area, shouldn't you be emphasizing that a little bit more? Or is it just simply, hey, three points is more than two points. And so we're going to spray out to the three-point line. It's It'll be interesting to see if Ty Lue adjusts that as the season goes on, if the Clippers hit a route where their shots are not falling um the free throw attempts and i think that's correlated with their lack of interior production is a little bit more concerning to me if just because we have seen guys on this clipper team struggle to get to the free throw line with the same consistency in the playoffs that they do in the regular season and mm-hmm. lou williams is the prime example right the number one of thing that. that comes to mind yeah right exactly in fact lou williams may be the number one guy in the entire nba mm-hmm. when it comes to that um i i think especially through the first 10 games of the season we saw ty lou ask lou to operate in a very different role than he historically has um you know he served much more as, as a passer and almost as a release valve uh, uh, for Luke Kennard and Reggie Jackson as they handled the ball. In fact, I think his shooting percentage, uh, his production in pick and rolls has gone down by like 10% and his shooting production has gone up by like 8%. 
um, uh, according to tracking data given by Synergy Sports while I was perusing their database. Um, and then eventually early last week, we saw Lou kind of revert back to the role that he did last season where he scored 21 points and he was much more of a ball handler and aggressive on offense. I don't totally know if Ty Lou knows what to do with Lou Williams going forward, because I think he, I think Ty Lou is very aware of Williams' struggles in the postseason and is trying to get him on a path that is sustainable, whether it's the regular season or the playoffs. And I don't quite know if he's figured out how to do that yet because the off ball release valve, I don't know if you're really optimizing what Lou is by, by having him there. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. And I know a lot of people thought that when the Clippers acquired Lou Kennard over the offseason, that he was sort of a insurance policy for Lou Williams, right? Like if the Clippers decided that they wanted to upgrade on him or just change him into a different type of player altogether, that at least they had that six man gunner creator in the second unit who could not replicate what Lou Williams does because I, I like Lou Kennard quite a bit. He's no Lou Williams, uh, but at least offer some of a similar skill set, right? Um, and that's that's a really interesting question because I I do not know how to best optimize Lou Williams in the playoffs. I have not seen it yet. Uh, I um, right. I don't really have ideas for what uh, to do better just because he's he's a little bit smaller. You know, he they, the refs don't call his stuff during the postseason, and uh, no. I don't think that's going to change. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Tyler's at least experimenting because that's all you can do during the regular season, right? It's just try to figure out what works. And then at least you have different looks to lean on in the playoffs. Right. I also don't, I'm not completely convinced that it's a bad thing that Lou Williams kind of has to change in the postseason, and mm-hmm. that we could just see him serve as that release valve and, and shooter to, to spread the floor, especially because naturally when the postseason arrives, rotations always shrink. Mm-hmm. Um, you hardly ever see teams really just throw out complete second units onto the floor um, without staggering their starting lineup. Which the Clippers so, aren't even doing now, which is great. Yeah. Right, which is also, will bring me up to an, another point in just a moment. Yeah. But I also, I don't know if it's a bad thing if we just say, hey, while we're in a chase for the number one seed or a top three seed at the very least, it's okay to have Lou Williams go off for 15 to 20 points a game uh, uh, during the regular season as a means of just winning games in February that we otherwise wouldn't without him. And then once we get into the postseason, yeah, things will change, but things will always change once we get into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I don't know if that's necessarily a thing that Lou should be all that concerned about. Um, but in terms of the Clippers staggering minutes, that is something that has been interesting to me in the early going, especially because in the preseason, we heard Ty Lue talk a lot about, we are going to play through our stars, which is a pretty obvious thing sure. to say. I like, mean, they have do you... done that, I would say. <laughs> right. Yes, they have. So if somebody were to have told me in the preseason that Paul George's usage rate would be way up, um, that he would be the focal point, of uh, the offense and his production would be what it is. I would be surprised, but I wouldn't be shocked because I would have assumed that that meant that him and Kawhi were playing a part a lot. Mm -hmm. That has not happened. Uh, It's happened uh, over the the last two games a little bit where uh, uh, Ty Lewis began to stagger their minutes a little bit as he tries to figure out that second unit that has just really not been good. 
but it's really just been Kawhi who's playing a lot of off ball uh, uh, and PG who has taken the reins. And that surprised me, the amount of time that the two have shared the court. Uh, I, I thought Ty Lue would have broken them up a little bit. Um, and we'll see if that continues, but that is something that kind of has raised my eyebrows through the first month of the season. Yeah, I think um, they were playing a lot separately when Marcus Morris was out because um, they the Clippers wanted to have just like more scoring on the floor at all times, right. you know, because if you're going to use Patrick Patterson, that second unit, like you need to have Kawhi or PG out there just to help things out. And uh, <clears throat> it does seem that once Morris has come back that like, Ty's letting him get a little more free reign in the second unit. And so that requires Kawhi and PG to play together more. It looks like so far that PG's played about two thirds of his minutes with Kawhi. So I don't know if that's a big number or not. I probably should have checked it against last year, but. um, From the eye test. And again, you're around this team mm -hmm. every day. And I will check in with the Clippers at least once a week. Uh, 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 So it may just be by the eye test. It seems like they're playing a lot more together than they did Mm -hmm. last season. Um, but I do also think, you know, that second unit is going to need something to change. Uh, and so so many times I think we'll just see coaches uh, not have a lot of structure with their bench unit. And they're oftentimes just built around a guy or two who can do one thing, you know, whether it's Lou Williams or Jamal mm-hmm. Crawford or Jordan Clarkson, who by the way, has been really, really good in Utah yeah. <laughs> in a way that I did not expect him to be. Um, and the Clippers, I think in years past have been built around that. Hey, just go out, get the ball. Please don't blow this 20 point lead. And if you mm-hmm. can extend it or you keep it the same, that would be really <laughs> great. That has obviously not happened this season. Uh, where that bench unit has been among the worst uh, 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 scoring units through the early going so far. Um, And so we'll be interested to see if Lou breaks Kawhi and PG up and starts playing them, uh, starts staggering those minutes and playing them more with a bench unit um, rather than just having five bench guys out there at the same time. Because especially defensively, it's just been not good. Yeah. Uh, that that might be the only thing that I really have like questions about with the Clippers is just what to do with that bench unit. And even then, like I'm not concerned. Let's say because a very easy fix is just okay. <laughs> let's put Kawhi or PG with one of them. You know, like it's not right. um, it's not a huge concern there. Uh, but let's take a quick break and then we'll come back and talk a little, a little bit about Kawhi Leonard. So Paul George has been very much in, you know, early season MVP conversations, uh, his efficiency obviously is off the charts. Uh, it's, it's insane, really. Like it's just <laughs> the 50, 50, 90 season is something that has not been approached. I do remember, uh, vividly following a, uh, Kyle Korver a few years back when he was approaching a 50, 50, 90 season. It's obviously very different when you're at the volume that Paul George shoots versus what Kyle Korver had to do. Um, he didn't make it, unfortunately, he didn't even get 40, 50, 40, 90 because his, so many of his shots were threes that like the whole thing just fell below four. Anyway, that's a different question. Um, I do wonder if Kawhi Leonard's start to the season has somewhat gone under the radar because, you know, just again, George has been so wonderful and George had this redemption narrative that he has been, you know, playing under based on the way last season ended. Whereas Kawhi 
I think skirted a little more of the blame because he had carried the Clippers through the bulk of the regular season and then had just a wonderful series against Dallas to start the playoffs. But I'm curious, uh, you, you obviously like went to Paul George first when I asked you like who was to credit for the Clippers success so far. Uh, you know, how does Kawhi fit into this? If you had to like make an MVP Clipper MVP proclamation, who would be yours at this point? In the regular season, I still think it's going to be PG. And part of that, I think, is the low-hanging fruit of how many games do we think Kawhi is going to end the season having played? Uh, just between the the natural load management, uh, uh, injuries that are bound to pop up during the, the regular season, even if they're not uh, significant, um, I... I just don't know that Kawhi is ever going to approach just the total raw numbers of minutes and games played to be in an actual MVP conversation. Whereas you could see PG, even if it's just partly narrative driven, getting some MVP consideration if the Clippers end up finishing, especially with the top overall seed and the Western Mm -hmm. Conference, you would have to imagine that okay, somebody, if you finish with the top seed in the West, given how strong the conference is, your best guy should almost automatically receive at bare minimum, a couple of votes for most valuable player, because that's a really great accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but just watching them play, it's clear that Paul George is the engine that's going to make this offense go. Now, again, so much of the Clippers success is going to be dependent on how they fare in the playoffs. And I do think that once we get into the postseason, it would not surprise me whatsoever to see Kawhi reassert control and make it clear, like, okay, this is my team a little bit, how we've seen, um, or at least thought we would see the Lakers play with Anthony Davis and LeBron James, where, you know, LeBron came in as the older veteran uh, whose legs aren't, quite what they were and say, okay, this is Davis's team, but in crunch time, I'm going to take control. That's obviously not worked out quite the same way, but I I do think it's a a little bit of a fair comparison in that PG is going to be the engine for a majority of the season. See, that's interesting that you would think that uh, Paul George, you know, is the engine, so to speak, that runs the Clippers and that he'll be the most important regular season player. Because while I do agree with that from a narrative perspective, it's obviously more important for Paul George to be better during this regular season, given what Kawhi has proven over the course of his career. I still think uh, over the first 15 games that Kawhi has been the better player. Um, he's only played like 40 fewer minutes than Paul George. And that's essentially explainable because he missed two games while these, you know, his face was knocked out. Uh, so he already um, has played his first back-to-back, which is a big step for the Clippers, right? I'm not as concerned about load management this year as I was last year. Maybe that'll come into play towards the end of the regular season when the Clippers have their seating locked in and it's, you know, not as important to get PG out there for games against the Kings and whatnot. But I still think that Kawhi has been the more impactful player on both ends of the floor. Like maybe this is a little recency bias you know having watched him just like take the ball out of the hands of deer and fox on multiple occasions and like uh just dunk all over the place uh over the last couple games uh, even if his game has always been a little bit quieter to me than paul george uh, 
he's still, I think the more efficient playmaker, like PG is growing into that role, but the turnovers are like Kawhi just doesn't turn the ball over at the same respect right. that uh, Paul George does. Maybe that's just because his hands are bigger and it's harder for him to lose the ball. Like there was this one sequence against Sacramento where he like went up for a dunk and like the ball just came out. And like, I've never seen that happen before. Uh, it, I was baffled that there wasn't a foul call just because like, how would the refs ever expect Kawhi to just lose the ball without some sort of obstruction? But anyway, that's uh, an entirely different tangent. <laughs> uh, well, not only that, but with his Dr. Hannibal, Dr. Doom, face mask thing i don't know is anybody you know brave enough to attempt to take the ball away from him he's absolutely terrified when he has that and then whenever i whenever he was wearing it i -hmm. always just pictured him laughing (laughs) in that press conference and i it freaked me out it's it's legit one of the weirdest masks i've ever seen but thankfully you know espn showed us a graphic of five people wearing masks like before the 70s and those were terrifying uh, so Kawhi Leonard is at least like not on that list but yeah uh i think it'll be an interesting conversation to have you know as the season goes on which guy is you know more important to the Clippers' success i don't think it's particularly relevant because obviously having two players of that caliber is more important than which one of them you know has a larger impact on success uh, but I do think it's going to affect like their individual candidacy for MVP votes, you know? Right. Um, and I'm not sure how much that matters to either of them. Like Kawhi has specifically said, like, I I'm not in this to win MVP or like individual stats. I just want to win. And uh, Paul George obviously said that he wants to get back to his MVP season. So maybe he does actually want an MVP <laughs> season. Um, sorry. I, I can't help myself. Paul George has so many funny things, but yes, he I, does. I do think individual award wise, it probably matters to PG a little bit more. So maybe, uh, you know, if the Clippers do end up making any awards pushes at the end of the year, in terms of like their marketing campaigns, you might see that swing to PG side, even though there is a compelling argument that he would still be the second most important player on the roster. Let me ask you a question. Mm-hmm. Do you think, so I try to watch at least two games mm-hmm. a night, but just because I read about the whole league, I try to change it up from one day to the next, what teams I'm, sure, I'm sure. watching. Yeah. So rarely do I get to see uh, the Clippers, for example, play on a, on a back-to-back on both nights. Mm-hmm. Considering the fact that the NBA is doing a lot of short, short ser- baseball-type series moves, right. so you're not having to travel. Uh, uh, the, the games are a little bit more spread out. Have you found that, for example, Kawhi, who has load management concerns, that you think it takes less of a physical toll for for the guys, the way the schedule is currently set up this season? Or are we not far enough into the year for it to have any discernible effect one way or another? So I think, you know, overall, the quality of basketball in the league this year hasn't been like at the level you would expect you know, like a month into a normal regular season. And that's just because of the length of the off season. And I think uh, a lot of, you know, national writers have mentioned this, there's a certain lack of joy in some of the motions, just because it's, it feels like a lot of work what the players are doing right now. They don't get to have the fun part of it, right. The interacting with fans and, you know, going out on the road and all that good stuff. It's, it's, it's a lot more serious. And that I think is reflected in, you know, some of the quality of play, but in terms of Kawhi specifically, I have not seen him look this bouncy uh, in a very long time. Like his legs look great. I mentioned earlier that he was just dunking on everybody. Like, I think that's the clearest indicator of the fact that he, he seems to be in much better shape than I would expect. um, Just given all the concerns we had last year. Um, I don't really think that, I mean, 
I have heard that he has like some sort of like degenerative quad issue. Like that's going to require, uh, right. you know, maintenance throughout the course of his career and even <clears throat> beyond. But uh, I think he looks physically like fantastic. You know, I, I don't think you ever see it down the stretch of games where it looks like he's a little bit tired. The obviously the mask games were difficult for him. You know, uh, he mentioned that the breathing was challenging and he was very uncomfortable with it. And like that, if you just take out like those three games, I think the Kawhi Leonard that you've seen otherwise uh, definitely physically is absolutely what the Clippers need him to be. Absolutely. You know, the other thing in terms of award season and if the Clippers will be in contention and any of the Clippers will be in contention for end of the year awards. I do think, look, given the success the Clippers have had and the fact that they are expected to be championship contenders, Ty Lue won't be in consideration for coach of the year unless they go on this. They're the number one overall seed. Like why not? Right. But you know, historically it's going to be somebody, somebody in Memphis is going to uh, be in contention for it. Or if the jazz end up finishing with the top two or three seed, I would imagine mm-hmm. Quinn Snyder will get someone some that overachieves, not like the Clippers who are expected exactly. to be a contender anyway. But Tyler should be in consideration for, <laughs> for coach of the year, at least through the first month of the season, I would imagine his adjustments will, will continue. Uh, I, I, it's so interesting because I think the narrative that surrounded him as a coach was that he was a, a this player's coach who could create a lot of buy-in from his roster and that he's really great at uh, challenging superstars and and, uh, uh, helping them raise their game. But really, tactically, he's as good as any coach in the league. Um, And a lot of the stuff that he's doing isn't even necessarily world altering. It's, you know, employing the use of analytics and Mm -hmm. attacking matchups and, uh, things that are low-hanging fruit, but still his ability to have changed the way that the Clippers have played by tweaking kind of everything at the margins, I think has been really noticeable and just really great. And I I don't know. I, I don't know if it's proper to say that he's underrated because that would mean somebody would have to say that, oh, Tyloo just sucks. I don't know if really any <laughs> serious person out there is saying that. Yeah, I got but a lot my... of comments saying that they did not want Tyloo to be hired uh, this season. And okay, yeah, that shocked me because all he's done is just make the finals every year that he's been the head coach. So I don't really know what the problem is. Right. I also, it's this weird, it, it also goes to the fact that he coached LeBron and coaches that you know, lead LeBron teams are, you know, obviously the popular narrative is, oh, well, LeBron is the coach, the general manager, uh, the team manager, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) LeBron does everything, which to a certain degree is true because LeBron does do everything. But Ty Lue, even when he was in Cleveland, really matched up well against Steve Kerr in a lot of those final series. Uh, And I was really hopeful for the Clippers coming in, not just because I thought that they needed a a voice change uh, after Doc Rivers, but because Lou seemed so willing to make some of the adjustments that Doc either couldn't or wouldn't. Um, And actually, I, I have another question for you, just being around this team. Obviously, just watching the Clippers play over the last several years, I knew that Doc... I don't want to change this whole conversation to going back in time, especially because I know on this podcast, you guys have probably done this, but just out of curiosity, I knew that Doc 
wasn't as analytically inclined as some of the other coaches around the league. And we saw a lot of that with his minutes regarding Montrez and Lou in the, in the playoffs and, and mm-hmm. things like that. But after he left, there seemed to almost be uh, some reporting going on that there was a lot of tension between Doc and the front office and particularly them wanting to introduce analytics um, in the way game plans were constructed. Were you aware of that? Because I, there didn't seem to be all that much tension for me, or do you think that was just something that after the fact, guys I, are not really... I think you can tell from the way Ty talks versus the way Doc talks, just like what is influencing their decision-making. And it was a common thing with Doc Rivers, like just very basic that we would ask about, you know, shooting more threes, because the Clippers have been a very good three-point shooting team percentage-wise over the last few years. They just volume-wise have not taken very many. And, you know, even like his resistance to, you know, taking more three-pointers, just like I want to take open shots, like um, little things like that. And uh, just, you know, in hearing in hearing Ty Lue over the first few weeks of the season, just the, the terminology he uses is stuff that you were not hearing from Doc Rivers. So I'm not sure that it was ever like obvious that there was, you know, a feud between Doc and like the rest of the members of the front office. But like, it was very clear that he had a way of doing things that is different from the way Ty Lue does things. And that is not surprising to me that, you know, reports of that would come out after he left. Uh, I do think it's just a, like a fascinating alternate timeline to think of, like if the Clippers had just beaten Denver and then Ty Lue, like, I don't know. What if like Milwaukee wanted to hire him or like, right. you know, um, just see what he can do with uh, an existing talent base. It's just very interesting to consider how his skills could have been put to use on another team. But like us, the Clippers are very fortunate to have him. And I think you make a very compelling case that if the, any Clippers should be an award consideration, it should be Ty Lue because if we look at the other teams atop the, you know, the league, uh, like Frank Vogel's not going to get consideration. Steve Nash hasn't really done enough. Mike Budenholzer obviously is not, um, I don't think Doc Rivers is getting coach of the year status for what he said in Philadelphia. I think that's very much a Joel and beat situation happening there. Um, and there haven't been a lot of like, I mean, I, I don't think Monty Williams deserves credit for Phoenix. Uh, and like none of those teams that I thought were going to be really bad have been like good enough to the point where I would give them that, you know, like Taylor Jenkins bump, like you said last year. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, at the very least, it's got to be top three at this point. Oh, absolutely. And, and, Look to also give credit where I think credit is due. It is a little bit of the of a chicken or the egg uh, argument because I do think what makes Tyloo's job a lot easier is the fact that I do think the roster is just much better constructed mm-hmm. this season, which I, I know I mentioned earlier. Um, the additions, their their four balance has just been a lot lot better. So it is, yes, it's picking the easy fruit or the low hanging fruit, mm-hmm. which is, I think the actual analogy there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but you still actually have to go and pick it and make that change. Mm-hmm. And I think he's done a really good job of identifying the least paths of resistance and gearing the teams toward that direction. All right. So we've spent a good deal of time talking about just a, what a wonderful outfit the Clippers have been this year. Um, <laughs> I'm curious if there was one thing that you were looking like any areas of improvement that you want to see, you know, going forward over the next 10 games sample or whatever, um, what would that be? I think it is the bench unit and what they end up doing uh, uh, with that group. I, the two easy answers that come to mind are one, you try to go and make 
an acquisition. Um, and I, I can imagine that every Clippers fan is going to have PJ Tucker yeah. on their wish list. The unfortunate reality there is, is that I think it pretty much any fan of any team in the NBA that has a hope of making the playoffs is going to have PJ Tucker uh, at the top of their wish list. And I don't know that the Clippers will really, both in terms of salary commitment and just draft equity, have the assets that they need to be able to acquire somebody. Yeah, of- I mean, just like step in there with PJ Tucker, the initial reporting said that the Rockets expected somewhere in the neighborhood of three second rounders to get PJ Tucker. And the Clippers just got four extra from Detroit in that Lou Kennard trade. So if the Rockets are willing to just say like, hey, we'll take Lou Williams' salary if you're going to give us those four second rounders, like right. that's a deal that could happen. Um, that, you know, I, I read that report and I, you know, I think Kevin Porter Jr., who also just got traded last night, mm-hmm. the Cavs had traded four second rounders for the rights. That's correct. The 30th overall pick to the Pistons, I believe it was mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. Um, second round is just making the moves. <laughs> yeah, it's just every, like everybody is just in love with the second round, which I mean, look, you want as many bites at the apple as you can possibly get. I can't help but feeling they're going to inevitably get more for Tucker mm-hmm. uh, as the season goes on, especially because with the play-in tournament, more teams are going to be involved in this race than ever before. And I do think if God willing, we have fans in the seats yeah. by late season, I can see a team that is on the fringe feeling the financial uh, uh, push to try to make the playoffs to get that playoff revenue in and overpaying and sending a first round pick and two mm. second round picks to Houston for Tucker. I, I could very much see that happening. And so I don't know. I, I think that four second round picks is more of a baseline than a ceiling for what they end up getting. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. You said uh, there was a couple ways to improve that bench unit. One of them would be getting another player. Yes, yes. Uh, and staggering the minutes, which yes. is what we've seen uh, uh, and, and talked a little while ago about uh, uh, Ty doing. I I think the third option, which may end up being, um, so the bench unit's struggles has obviously been on the defensive side of the ball mm-hmm. and the fact that they just have not been able to guard anyone, um, but that they've been subpar offensively. Uh, and I do think we saw last week a little bit where, where Lou kind of went off um, and, and the coaching staff kind of took the reins off him a little bit. I I also wouldn't be surprised if we see a, a reversion to how the Clippers have utilized Williams um, in the past start to come up again. If just because if you're looking for in-house fixes, that seems to be a fairly obvious one. Yeah. You know, you just got to let Lou will do his thing, right? Yes. <laughs> he didn't win sixth man by being a passer. No. And sometimes don't try to overthink it. I think, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm going to let you out soon, but you did say that you had some thoughts about Zoom etiquette on press conferences that you wanted to share. Okay. And so I we'll, we'll try to keep it brief because I know that this is very like niche. Yes. <laughs> and I apologize because nobody, you know, cares, but Zoom etiquette is something we're all getting used to, you know? And I just have a question. When, for those at home, you log into the Zoom meeting from the team's PR staff and they inevitably, um, you know, first it's the coach and then they get several players up. 
I have decided that a you and and during those times it could be like a 15 minute break in mm-hmm. between when somebody comes up to the podium and while you're just sitting there of course and some of our colleagues will leave their video on for that entire duration and it's just it's not just uncomfortable because you're just staring there and they're doing other stuff they're writing they're you know right. pulling up stats i'm going to and i'm not going to say in what market i'm not going to say who i have seen some of our colleagues do some mildly embarrassing weird things on the you know you have an inch in your nose yeah sure you have to sneeze normal human things but i think can we all just agree that while we're waiting for somebody to come up to the podium that the video should be off am i wrong in that you know uh so most of my experience is with the Clippers and they do not even have video for the uh, audience during practices and shoot arounds. Oh, they don't. Only during pregame and postgame is video allowed. Okay, yes. So um, pregame is obviously very short. It's just Ty Lue. He comes, he goes, right. that's it. And postgame, um, there are some gaps, obviously, because Paul George and Kawhi Leonard like to take their time before talking to the media at the end. I'm not sure why they still need to do that during this particular stretch of our lives, but uh, you know, a lot of, I would say that most people tend to turn their video off during those breaks and then come back. And if they keep their video on, it's because they're just at Staples center and, you know, right. sitting on that, you know, concourse. And so really what is there to see? You know, I, here's the other thing. When you ask a question, do you then turn your video on so they, because they can see you right? If you have your video on, there's right, a screen right. in front of them, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So uh, for, for those pregame, postgame, yeah, I, I generally turn my video on when I'm asking a question, unless like I've just like finished working out and I don't want to turn my video on. Okay. See, cause that's the other thing is, is that yeah. I, I don't like having the video on at any point. I don't know if it's because I'm embarrassed. Like, oh, I'm sorry that I have to ask you this stupid question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a lot of anxiety about the questions that I ask pre-game and post-game I have a fear of going viral uh, Mm. for being one of those reporters that asks a really dumb obvious question because I you know I don't know I got up to the bathroom and missed a key play and and, you know like why did I don't even know what that would be but anyways (laughs) I okay so but I have been thinking it's probably rude not to have the video on Mm -hmm. So that the coaches or players can't see you. So we think the etiquette should be when you ask the question, turn the video on. Yeah, if possible. I would agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I understand people like if they uh, are like, you got kids running around in the background or like there are situations where obviously like if you don't want to put the video on, like it's entirely your decision, but um, I'm with you. Like if there are gaps, you know, feel free to just shut the camera off. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yes. That's that's all that's all I'm saying. I I will say this. I am not a, a very large person. I'm like five five, a hundred and thirty, and you know, I'm short or whatever. I do like the zoom in that I don't have to like elbow my way through the scrum <clears throat> to get to, especially when they're doing those hallway interviews with the mm-hmm. coaches and people have their phones out and my arms don't even reach high enough for my phone to you know, be yeah. up so I can record the conversation. I do like Zoom for that. It's an equal opportunity 
venue. Yeah. That's my take. We just we have to play by some rules, you know. Yes. <laughs> Which everybody's <laughs> doing, whether you're at a press conference or not. We all have to play by some Zoom rules. And I exactly I completely understand that. Well, David, thank you so much for your time talking about the Clippers, all of your insight on Ty Lue and Paul George and everything that's happening here. Uh, tell the people where they can follow you. So I am with Clutch Points. You can find my work there. I will be having a story go up this weekend on the Indiana Pacers and some of the interesting things that they have been doing. You can also follow me on Twitter at DBJ1990. Excellent. Uh, and I, I do have to tell people that, unfortunately, David is not the Clutch Points graphics man. Uh, no, which is really, to be I'm clear, just, they are the I'm going to say that like, the graphics crew should just like maintain anonymity because they are just true heroes in this space. <laughs> they, I, for anybody who did not see it, the sex ed graphic that they put up is in the Hall of Fame for our best graphics that yeah. we've ever done on the site. I, I saw it and I immediately knew it was gold. Also, I, I do have to say my Twitter handle is not DBJ1990. My Twitter handle is DBJ2008. Okay. So <laughs> I'm Good new to, to Twitter. It's a very exciting time for me. <laughs> well, I mean, as long as we have the right year at the end of the handle, that'll make yeah. it easier for people to yeah. get you up to speed on that platform, right? Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Um, thank you all for listening. Make sure that you're subscribed to the Clips Nation podcast on iTunes or Spotify so you can catch our shows whenever they pop up. And we'll talk to you later.